so here I am sitting in this bathtub and um, having suicidal ideations. And um, we had like a group message going and I, you know, I was scared. A lot of the feeling of like mental illnesses back then, um, we, we weren't talking about them. So since we weren't talking about them, I didn't think anyone had them. And I definitely didn't think Christians had them because they're like the salt of the earth, you know? And so, you know, is the devil winning that I'm feeling like I don't want to be here anymore? This is Erica Henry, and you're listening to the Holy District Podcast. In episode six of our Eternal Oblivion podcast, we wrap up the series with a couple questions, one that comes from our listeners and one that comes from Emily to me as we finish this out. I want to give you a heads up that we will be talking about some difficult content, including the ideas of and the experience of pregnancy loss. And if, um, if that would be troubling for you or too difficult for you to listen to, I would just encourage you to go ahead and skip this episode or even give it a listen and then reach out to me if you would like to process with someone safe. I'll share more of those details later, but for now, I will kick it back to Emily as she leads us into and through our final episode of the series. Let's do it. It's been mentioned a few times that I've dealt with religious trauma. I do want I do want to be clear that I don't feel like I dealt with a lot of religious trauma growing up or I didn't feel bullied or like, um, it's not, it's not near what I experienced in my twenties, um, and late teen years. Um, I, there's a definite like undertones of the whole purity culture that of course I wouldn't have known about as a kid and the hellfire and brimstone, which probably all, and I think we have discussed in this podcast can, or you and I have discussed in our um, just personal conversations together, it does have um, an effect on my like inner voice, even if I don't realize it. And I think sometimes you pointed it out, maybe even Sarah um, reminded me of those things. Cause she grew up in some, some of the churches that I went to as well. Yeah. But I do like, I do look back on being a kid and being in church as a positive experience. Yeah. There was community, you know, my friends that I went to school with went to my church and, um, I just, I want that benefit of the doubt to be there. So if, if Christians are listening and, almost looking at me as like an agnostic person in this skeptical way. I do have a lot of great memories and um, life lessons, you know, attached to going, going to church. Yeah. Um, I went to a church 
when I was living in Tennessee. And I had mentioned that when I was in like my darkest times at that age and I was going through depression, I didn't know it was depression. I didn't know the word for it then. Um, I was going to a church that felt larger than life. It wasn't a huge church. It wasn't a mega church. I mean, it was almost like a starter church, maybe a hundred people, maybe. And they believed in raising people from the dead and curing eyesight. And, you know, people are falling out in the spirit and they're believing that God can create these like blue auras in a room because he did in Pentecost and um, California during the the revival. So I'm believing that in these moments of just despair that I'm having, I can reach out to this college group that I was in. um, And it shouldn't be, you know, no thing. Like it's just depression. It's not cancer, you know, it's not, um, it's not that big a cross to bear, I guess. And they can tackle it with me. Um, just in case I haven't went over it, this group that I was in felt more family to me than my family at this age. And I think, um, a lot of groups like that can kind of get you because that, that vulnerability was so much there. And to this day, a lot of them know me in ways that I don't think anyone can ever know me. Sure. Even if it was 20 year old me or 19 year old me, there was a lot of um, innocence lost there, but there were st- the relationships were so much more in depth or they felt that way for me mm-hmm. at the time. So we would do these things like, Jericho Jericho marches on the campus and we just we really believed like we were acting out this you know using the gifts of the spirit and nothing was too big to tackle so here I am sitting in this bathtub and um having suicidal ideations and um we had like a group message going and I, you know, I was scared. A lot of the feeling of like mental illnesses back then, um, we, we weren't talking about them. So since we weren't talking about them, I didn't think anyone had them. And I definitely didn't think Christians had them because they're like the salt of the earth, you know? And so, you know, is the devil winning that I'm feeling like I don't want to be here anymore. So to admit that to these people that you're in this constant, like euphoric, you know, hands raised, they're speaking in tongues. There's all this prophetic stuff always coming through. And then I'm like, Hey, you know, I'm, I need a lifeline. Um, I didn't want to be that person. I didn't even know that person really existed in 2008 to 2012. It still wasn't normal in my world. So all that to say, I had said to you that it was devastating the response that I had, because there was really like no response at all. You know, I'll pray for you. 
um, thoughts and prayers, you know, like we see now on Facebook. Oh yeah. Yeah. Facebook wasn't huge, um, at the time, but there were two people, um, I'll call my girlfriend Beth and I'll call my guy friend David. They weren't my day-to-day friends out of that group, right? Like say there are 20 kids in this group, some would come and go, but there was a hardcore 10, 15, and everyone had their two or three besties, right? Sure. Everyone had their person that they clicked with. I think I was trying to click with people that didn't necessarily click with me. So these two, I, I love them. I would see them every weekend or I would see them throughout the week during our meetings. And I would love hearing their testimonies and things of that nature, but I never broke the surface with them. So when I had received a message from them separately, um, it was, it was, I would, I would even dare to say it was life-changing because I didn't realize at the time, but I had been so broken down. I didn't feel um, like I was worth anything. I didn't feel like physically, I didn't feel attractive, Um, which I know that sounds superficial, but like um, when you're kind of being criticized physically, mentally and spiritually and you're not crossing any of those boxes for a church that you're like holding on this pedestal and these leaders that you like want to um validate you or like you know think highly of you and I'm not I'm not checking those boxes it was really hard so when they reached out to me um and I, I want to focus on Beth. Um, it was just life changing because then I started having this like relationship with her, and you know, actually, like her family really took me in, and we would go on drives. And back when there was movie stores, that we would go to those, and we just kind of like I kind of like fi- finally maybe experienced a taste of what like most people get to taste when they're that age and single, like, you know, like that college experience that most people were having, you know, I had, I had really just given all that up. I was living in a college town, people I'm seeing and working with, they're going out and having fun at a bar or having parties. And I couldn't, cause that was a, that con- I felt convicted in doing that. So getting to hang out with her was, um, such a breath of fresh air. And it started to kind of pull me back down. Like, it helped me to start seeing um, not that I was okay. Cause I was still having, I was still having all, all these different like identity crises, like crisis issues, but I don't, she just made me feel human. And like, you know, she was going through it too. And if I remember right, she had really grown up in this church and, um, her having grown up in it and still had this black sheep feeling, you know, it didn't sit right with me. Um, I, her family was just such a sweet family and they were so 
like enveloping, if that was a good word, like they are just, every one of them is just like a warm hug. Mm. And I, I would say that I was like that time. I don't really think I'm, I come off like that anymore, but it was just really refreshing to have someone care about me. Yeah. And like I said, I had believed that this God that we were serving and, and the people that were doing his work would help pull me out. And I'm not saying that like it was their um, problem to solve, but it made things seem very fake because we were reading, I mean, we were writing these journals, like I have an entire journal, just the book of Acts. Like we were just tearing apart the Bible and how much despair is in the Bible. Like how many people now that I'm, you know, what, what age am I? 31 are in the Bible crying out, Yeah, you know, like yeah. looking back on it, I'm like, but anyways, she's amazing. And, um, if it, if it weren't for her, I probably would have stayed there longer. If it weren't for both of them, I probably would have really fell into it. And, um, I don't know. I, I don't know if I, I really don't know if I would be here today. Cause I mean, it was a hard, 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 um, dark time. So thankfully, um, as much as social media can be a little bit of a succubus, I've been able to, even though I've moved so much since spending our couple of years together. Um, and even actually, we probably don't even talk that much, maybe like once a year, on Facebook or she comments on my post or I comment on her post or something. There's that sense of like, we get to keep up with each other's lives. And I, I've watched her get married on Facebook and, um, he seems like a great guy. And I watched her, um, announce her pregnancy on Facebook and, um, she had reached out to me in regards to this podcast. Um, I was surprised, but I was excited that she responded because again, she did go to that church at the same time. And I only know my experience and how I've developed over the years and how I've thought on it. So getting to see through her lens just a little bit, um, was really, really cool. And I was also a little bit scared because our problems felt so big at like at 1920, 21, but like just as I went through my struggles in adulthood, she was so, so excited um, when she found out that she was pregnant and she ended up losing her daughter. I know that she had her I think around 23 weeks. And so the baby came early. And I remember seeing post and she was so transparent about, I don't know if I should call it anger, but it was definitely frustration with God. And it just, of all the people, and I feel like this for all pregnancy loss, but it hits home when it's people that you care about so much and feel like they deserve to experience it. Um, 
man, it was just so heartbreaking. And when she reached out to me, uh, I made sure I could like give her daughter the respect that she deserves. So I did go back and find a few posts that she had made so I could speak from her point of view. And then I thought maybe I would read a couple of those and then I would read Beth's question to me. Or, well, maybe there are questions. Maybe a lot of it is just her perspective. So I guess I'll start with those posts. And I do want to say, like, it was only in, I believe, 2019 that this happened. And for me, at least, 2020 and 2021 have all been a blur. So it's still fresh to me. And I'm not, I'm not Beth. So I just, um, I just want to make sure that I don't, I just want to be as respectful as possible um, with her because I just couldn't imagine. And I think pregnancy loss is something that is very real. And I don't know if churches are touching on it in the ways that they should. And again, a lot of my issues with this existential crisis, like I said, it's not just the big guys that I'm like, these amazing people. And what if it's just nothing? It's all of us and it just, it touches all of us. Everyone leaves. And I, I, I could see in her saying like, yeah, what's it all for? Like, why am I, why am I going through all of this if, if it's for nothing? So um, one of the first posts that she made, she said, once she announced that she had had her baby and that she came early, she made a follow-up post and said, I've really been struggling with wondering why God lets things like this happen to people who love him. We fought so hard for our daughter to even be conceived. It's also hard to comprehend why he, talking about God, didn't close my cervix, why he didn't heal our infection, why he didn't allow her to grow some more before birth. I don't doubt that he has a plan for her. She's already proven that he's working through her and her life is ministering to people all over the United States in her short six days of life. I guess the human side of me thinks all of this is so unfair. My heart breaks a little more every passing second. My anxiety is the highest it's ever been. All I think about sometimes is how I'll be able to live if she doesn't, is how I'll be able to live if she doesn't make it for whatever reason. My girl is a fighter and I'm not giving up on her. I don't care what prognosis and diagnose, diagnoses the doctors are throwing at us. God put her in my, in my husband's life for a purpose, but that purpose is so hard to see right now. Struggling mentally today just, just had to be real. And then three days later, she posted, I just wanted to let everyone know that at 4.56 a.m., our sweet daughter met her Jesus. We rocked her and talked to her the whole last hour of her life and let her know just how loved she is. She went to her Savior so peacefully and quietly, just like a sleeping baby should. She fought hard and she fought long. Our feisty red-headed girl shook the earth with her life. We can't even begin to thank each and every person who's prayed for her. 
sent us messages, gifts, foods, etc. You all made such an impact on our lives. We're going to be broken without her as I feel like a part of my soul has died and gone to heaven with her. Please pray for us as this season will be even more difficult than our last. We do ask for privacy and respect during this time. I want to put an emphasis, whether it's credible or not. This happened in, in 2019. And the reason why I brought up 2020 and 2021 and how it's so like still on the surface for me, and I could only imagine that it is still for Beth, is like, we weren't really so much faced at our age with the sense of like mortality, you know, we had the world as we knew it had never experienced a pandemic. Um, even an epidemic was seeming strange in those few weeks that we started understanding like, wow, this virus is real. And I could not imagine. I mean, I know that you were pregnant during this time. I could not imagine going through this huge loss and then basically by the time you're starting to try to mull through it boom lockdown right not only lockdown but then we're all kind of faced with this oh like anyone anyone can be touched by this virus and just the kind of like we start seeing how it touches everyone's lives, you know? Yeah. And so when she messaged me, let me read what she said to me. I guess I just meant with all that. Even if I'm wrong, to me, it feels like it hits even harder in this day and age. I don't think loss at any time period is like welcomed um there's just like this like grief period and things that we kind of expect now at this point in our evolution and when you kind of expect it it's almost worse when you can't when you don't have the space to you know sure so she said to me when she responded to our podcast it's amazing how much i identify with what you're saying I questioned my faith around the same time, but not fully until we lost Kate. Now I'm left with a lot of the same questions and worries. I'm identifying religious trauma from, and she names the church we went to. It felt like I was never Christian enough for their standards. I missed the community I had with church, but I also don't want to attend anymore. People just feel so disingenuous and hard to relate to inside of church from my experiences, especially now that my husband and I don't fit into a typical group. We're young adults, but not childless, although our child isn't living. So I feel even more like I don't belong. And what you're saying about like, does our life truly matter? That hit me in the gut. I didn't realize that's what I was feeling until you talked about it. I was led to believe so much growing up in the church that I don't necessarily believe anymore. So I'm kind of lost in the gray area of kind of believing and kind of not. Like, I like, do I believe in heaven because I want to? 
because I want to believe my daughter is there waiting for me? Or do I believe because I actually believe? And then getting into the science behind worship music and the manipulation to make you feel something like that's still messing with my brain. Like, did I actually feel anything? When we hung out, I feel like we talked a lot about boys and we talked about church and we talked about God, but I don't remember that we ever kind of talked about the elephant in the room of the place that we attended. Yeah. And I remember when I left and there were a lot of rumors going on about me. I mean, I, I had heard that I was, they couldn't speak to me anymore because I was possessed by a demon and like supposedly an exorcism had been done on me. Wow. <laughs> okay. Never happened. Um, but I remember I, I moved to St. Louis right after this. And I kind of like had this hope that at least the people that I truly cared about and had relationships with would see, um, Hey, like something was going on here. Sure. It wasn't okay. In, in the church. And, um, she would reach out to me and talk with me and, um, no one else really besides Beth and David, left my roommate eventually did maybe around the same time and she actually did come forward several years later i mean i want to say like 10 years later and and talked with me but we've never really like discussed the heaviness and the impact of the trauma that we all went through while going there so when she uh when she named religious trauma and i hadn't even said Right. where I went or where it began. Um, she knows I've moved all over. It could have been anywhere. So yeah, it was sadly validating, you know? Yeah. Something I hadn't thought about is when you're attending a church after in your hour age and you've lost a baby and there's all these people our age and they've got their kids all dressed in their Easter outfits and they're, they're busy and they're shuttling their kids off and they have this group for these kids and they've got this for their age. And they have all these come like, um, community events, you know, they got the bouncy houses and stuff like that. Could, that alone can be triggering for her. Of course. And I mean, it's not to any fault of, you know, the events are the church in regards to just existing. Right. But I mean, how do you walk into somewhere when it automatically pours assault in your wound? Yeah. I can I guess I kind of want to see your experience or something on that, like with working in churches and having your own and um have you witnessed a lot of their like being community and and groups spaces made for those that have experienced you know infertility and um pregnancy loss and things of that nature i mean i think in my experience of the church what I would say, and this is a critique of 
the church that, you know, the, I would say the white evangelical kind of attractional church that I've spent a lot of time in, of my Christian life in is that we don't do grief well. We don't do loss well. We don't do mourning well. And that's almost why this conversation to begin with was so important to me, M, because as I've grown in my faith and I've differentiated from like the faith that I grew up with, but as I say, like stayed on the journey with Jesus, I just began to realize more and more like Jesus died. Jesus died. Jesus, we like, and there was like, there was like some significant mourning. Yes. Our faith, like our faith is actually built on someone who died, um, who went through death and it's built on a person who, when he saw his friend Lazarus had died, cried. Um, do you think there's a crutch in that though for most followers since Lazarus was raised from the dead and Jesus absolutely absolutely so people think you know what I mean yeah and that's that's kind of where I was going with that thought was that I realized as I stayed on the journey with Jesus that the Christianity I experienced wanted life and resurrection but no death but the Jesus that I saw in the gospels had a, a life, uh, that was complex and, and, um, that he experienced suffering and that he was moved to compassion by the suffering of others and that he was dead and that his followers did not know or did not understand or did not think that he would be raised from the dead. There's, um, we skipped we skip the chapter on death and we go straight to resurrection. And, and here we are living in a world where everything and everyone dies, everything and everyone dies. Mm -hmm. And, um, so that life skipping over death into resurrection was so powerless to me as I became an adult, as, as, as I felt compelled that Jesus was leading me to serve um, and to become friends with people who were experiencing the worst that this life has to offer and, and calling me to become friends and to, to suffer with those who are suffering. Um, as, as I followed Jesus and it seemed like that's where Jesus was taking me, I had to have a faith that, that understood or included death in a more robust way. And, um, and I would say my experience is very similar to Beth's experience that when folks go through the most deep and, uh, deeply painful things that can happen in this life, I mean, I'm, I'm on the brink of tears, just, just imagining that depth of loss that she and her husband live with. Um, having experienced a pregnancy loss myself and, and having a child um, that is 18 months old now that I could not imagine losing 
Um, I know that um, the majority of churches that I've uh, worshipped in and been a part of and even, even been on staff compartmentalize the grieving and put them in a, in a space where they won't bother the rest of us. I, I was really thinking that when you were talking because how frustrating is it when someone is a believer and there is this one thing that just shakes them to their core and does make them question their belief system and makes them say, like she says here, am I just believing in this because I want to know that my daughter went somewhere? Yep. And they're just, they're not this like shiny new toy that a church can be like, look what my God did for me. Well, when our grief renders us um, useless to, to the Christian machine, when our story isn't easy, when our feelings are too much, when our pain is too big to carry and we are not useful, I think the Christianity that all of us are raging against in this podcast and in our souls is um, a Christianity that says, please go somewhere else until you figure this out. And then you can come back and tell us what, how good God is. A hundred percent. I mean, I, completely believe in counseling and um, the powers of therapy, but I've even known of support groups, grief support groups going on in churches and they see, say things of like, yeah, um, you sound a little angry. We can't help you. You need to go to therapy. And it's like, it's a grief support group. Y'all made a five-step system and told us that anger is a part of it. And you're going to say, but I don't have, I, I'm coming to this grief support group to bear my heart that even my, my family might not even know how in depth it is. And I'm coming to you and entrusting with you with it. And you're like, yeah, doesn't seem like you're coming full circle yet. And we need something to tie a pretty bow on it. And you're not one of them. So go see a therapist. Yeah. And what I was saying, I, again, I full fledged go to therapy myself, sure. but it just kind of seems strange uh, in, in terms of what they're saying that they're, they're able to help with, or at least feel a community with. If, if you're being told when you go and find a support group or you want to go and, you know, cry at the altars, uh, and they're saying, yeah, that's not, um, that's not what we do here. Yeah. It's, um, what I heard, what I heard Beth saying in in her message that she reached out to in response to our podcast was I, I desire community as I am. Um, and as I am now, there's nowhere for me to fit. There's nowhere that I belong with all my pain, with all my anger, with my questions, with my doubts, with my loss, and with all the other things that, that Beth and her husband are. Um, and I think that's, you know, we outsource care because it's, it's a very uncomfortable place to be. And I, and I think what it comes down to is that 
I don't think that the Christianity that we grew up with or that you experienced at, at this church that you and, and Beth both went to is robust enough um, to handle just the realities of life if you are willing to be open-eyed about how b- painful and difficult it is. I don't think that's true of Christianity in general, and I don't think that's the only way that Christians have operated, but it certainly has been our experience. And, um, and I, you know, I just have to say that when you share with me this message and Beth's story, I mean, I couldn't sleep for the next few nights just thinking about her and thinking about if she were a part of the Holy District and, um, if I had the the honor of being her pastor and, um, you know, how, how could, how could we be together, you know, in that, in that time. And it's, it's something that I've just been really thinking a lot about. And I think, I think the hard part of, I think the reason why we default or the church can tend to default into these kind of, well, you go here and then when you get better, then we'll reintegrate you into our, our community is because death is so painful and so scary that most of us really don't even want to think about it unless we absolutely have to. And even then we'll do anything that we can to avoid it. And um, most of the time when we are in spaces where we are experiencing this kind of grief, there are no good answers. There aren't there's nothing that anyone can say to you to make it better. There's nothing that anyone can do to fix it. There's nothing that any of us can do to bring Kate back. And we have a culture that is only interested in the things that we can do and we can do well and we can succeed at and we can perform. And I think that the church as a community, when it comes to walking alongside one another through these kinds of things has to get much more comfortable and much more willing to just be really sad and angry and honest together. And just to be with people, to be silent, to be present, um, to be confused, to be disrupted, to be all of those things and know that none of that takes us outside of God's will or God's love or God's grace or, or anything. But if that feels at stake, like if, if having doubts or being mad at God or being, uh, lacking joy, if that feels like that is putting you in danger, like it puts your eternal security in danger, then people out of a survival, a spiritual survival instinct must distance themselves from the from the suffering and i think that's what happens
I don't have the answers And maybe that's okay I don't have the answers Yeah, as I was listening to you explain that maybe this is an American flaw maybe it's a maybe it's worldwide um relationally it feels like couples friendships when someone is going through something are you maybe you they aren't and you view it like they are and they're venting to you your automatic response is to want to fix it and you can't always fix it and some like in relationships that can end up in like fights and stuff because they're just like i just wanted you to listen to me right yeah i just wanted to be heard and i kind of had like my own little epiphany there of like maybe why i have my friends are few and far between, but the ones that I have, we've been able to sit in those hard times together. And just, we, yeah, you know, and I didn't have an answer. And maybe, you know, it's, it's stuck for a little while, but we were safe in crying to one another. And it made me think of, I know you know that, again, I'm agnostic and some days I believe in God and some days I'm just like, I don't even know. And I just kind of think for me, that's what agnostic means. And um, I'm also having a huge internal battle right now with Hillsong because of the documentary I just watched and she had brought up music and like I've said before, that's how I've ever really spiritually been led. I've had uh, sermons that have hit me on the nose or whatever, but music you can listen to anytime, anywhere. And um, it's just always had a direct access to my heart. And when I was going through such a tough time um, with our girls now, and it was right when the pandemic started, a church that I went to in Mount Vernon, they um, sang the song, The Blessing. And I found myself, it just felt kismet. Like when I listened to it, the, d- the day after is when hell broke loose for me in regards to my kids. And The Blessing really kind of talks about just almost manifesting, right? Like that's the word in 2022 manifesting, um, and, and just asking God like to bless our generations and, um, our kids' generations and just really all encompass, like keep us safe in, in my, in, in, in the way that I interpret the song. And, um, there have been so many times when I hold the most like grief and things in regards to my, my children, because they are just that life extension of me and they have been my purpose. Um, that I will always kind of like go back to that song and just grieve. It's not me praising God. It's not me, um, 
being like just joyous and thankful that he has, it's almost like this cry of like, please, 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 please be this, this, that what this song evokes, like I be that for me. And there's been so many just like crying sessions in my car after I take my kids to school or in, in just my alone time. And, um, I, I guess when like we're we're in church and and we were listening to praise and worship, I didn't interpret it to be that for everyone. I mean, maybe people, most people, they go to the altar and they might like they're crying, but it kind of seemed like, at least in my experience, ten plus years ago, um, that it was more like they were giving something up, you know, like I'm no longer selfish. So I'm crying because I'm breaking the chains of all the things that are holding me back. It's not like I'm up here at the altar because I don't know why, you know, your daughter gets to be here and mine doesn't. Yeah. Because as far as I can think back and maybe our parents sheltered us from that because I remember, I mean, I remember altar calls since I was nine years old, but it always felt more of like shedding your ego Mm. and not calling out or even holding accountable. God, God. And maybe there is that, but I just kind of wonder like if there was that space, maybe you wouldn't have to cry in your car or you would have wouldn't have you would have still been a church <laughs> maybe yeah I am that's it's you saying that makes me think of our conversations we've been having about the bible on this podcast because I know how we were taught to think about the bible but as I've read the bible in my adult life I see much more of what you just described people who who identify as god's people who are just going through it and are just suffering and are just seeing injustice and death and difficulty. And, um, and they're, they're saying to God, where are you? Like, did you forget what you promised? Are you going to be who you said that you are? And That is, those are the songs. Those are the prayers. Those are the stories that the people who edited the Bible together chose to keep, chose to to put in to the scriptures. And that's um, part of why I feel angry. I have felt angry about how I was taught to understand the Bible because I actually was taught to understand it in the opposite way as if it's this, this, constant story of victory. And this is what it looks like if you follow God, but it's, it's honest to goodness. It's not. And the Bible itself uplifts that posture of just doubt and wrestling and, um, agnosticism and not knowing and calling, asking God to be accountable and and asking God, where were you? Where are you? And our, our churches often don't talk about that. They don't preach from that. They don't teach from that. And they don't model that in the way that we do community. And that is 
a failure. That's, that's a huge failure. And I think that's why in some ways, like when it comes to how we're trying to be the church in the Holy district is that we, we have decentered the sermon. Um, we don't think that church is about coming and being taught about God. We think that church is a space of belonging where we come together and we invite God to bring the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven into our lives. I mean, if you were, if you were in Allentown with us on a, in a worship gathering, we have a time where we listen to the scripture. And then we have a time of confession where we can just say, this is where I'm at. I'm not good right now. I'm not good with God right now. This is what I'm going through. And that's, that's what that whole time is meant, is meant to be. And that's our shortest time. And then after that, we eat together. We, we have coffee together. We talk, we share about what's going on in our lives. And, um, and, and that is not that we're doing it perfect or that there's not a lot for us to learn, but we're trying to create a place and a space in our neighborhood that's compassionate and brave and accepting so that because there are hard things happening in our neighborhood and there's loss and there's pain and there's gun violence and there's poverty and there's life is hard where we live. Life is hard for everyone. Life is hard for everyone. And, you know, I think like Beth being so brave to share her story as she, as she did through this whole thing, Beth is not alone, but Beth is made to feel alone because the way that our churches have been, a lot of our churches have been structured is to say, we only want to see the parts of you that are shiny and pretty and okay. And those other parts deal with it, bring it to the altar cry your eyes out and, and figure it out rather than saying, you know, we're all here coming with lack and, um, Jesus is with us in that. And he is the one who is healing us. He is the one who is carrying us. He is the one who is holding us. And so, and there's nothing that can separate us from his love. So whatever we're going through, we can just go through it together and that's what we've got. And that's what we're going to do. Um, you don't have to, attain something in order to prove that you're Christian enough. And, and that, that's what Beth said, like her church experiences. I'm never Christian enough. I'm never Christian enough. And I, I know that I felt that that's how I felt growing up in the church. And it's been years and years of undoing of that to, to start to actually experience God in a different way than this constant feeling of not being good enough for God to, to still want me or to feel secure in my relationship with God. I, I'm thankful that you see things that way and that you're trying that you are, you know, going outside of Christianity as America knows it. Um, I've been thinking over the last few weeks that the podcast has been coming out something I always found so so like profound um uh like I love I love studying African-American history and I've always like really almost compared them to like Superman because of like especially in the 1800s 
of seeing like no way out and something that they clung to so heavily was their church and um how beautiful how beautiful uh the the things that they would sing in the fields and stuff i uh there was this one song and i was trying to think of it and it was more like a chant you know and they were just they would just sing it over and over and um i've always wondered like how they could like this and i wonder I'm sorry I fall down these rabbit holes, but when we talk about the Bible and how it was translated and then how it's made it to present day, and um, like I've said, that it was written by the victors um, or translated by the victors, both to me, but maybe not to everybody, maybe it would be easier for me to accept if it was translated by W.E.B. Du Bois. You know, mm -hmm. if it was translated by people that understood the same slavery that is talked about, right, in the Bible. Like, maybe if it had been translated by those actual martyrs. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, I guess martyrdom, I don't mean that they, but those that were actually going through the same oppressions that we hear about in the Bible, because when you're talking, I was like, well, yeah, I can see why Christian America likes the Bible. It's, it's kind of that same thing of um, when you see a guy standing on the street and he's like, here's a dollar and they won't take it, but they want to give him money. Like it makes them feel better to give the money than to take it. We can separate ourselves from the Bible because it doesn't look at all like our world now. And it hasn't, right? Because it's so long ago. But we can water it down and pick out these righteous values and these amazing little parables. Um, and we can we can make it into the sermon that we want to make it into our, our little daily devotional. But um, and you can just like walk alongside that. And it can just be this little thing because it's still separate, separate from your life, and you can make it applicable. What would it have looked like had actual like minorities and people that had went through oppression? I mean, how would how would it have looked? Like why 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 do we believe the translations that were you know created out of power? You know, this might be splitting hairs here, but I think one way that I would reframe what you said is interpretations. Why do we believe interpretations of the Bible that come from a place of power? Um, because I do think that um, we do have people of color, minorities, marginalized folks who, I mean, it's much too late to finally be right. listening to their voices but they are interpreting the Bible and they are providing, uh, you know, liberation theology is one um, really amazing field of study that Blake and I really like to spend time in. And interestingly enough, the book that shifted my trajectory as a Christian and helped me to start realizing that the way that I had learned to read the Bible was not the Bible, but was a way to interpret the Bible was a book by the late James Cone called The Cross and the Lynching Tree. And he 
talks in that book about the faith of exactly, you know, the folks that you were referencing and, and how in Jesus, they looked at an innocent man murdered on a tree and said, that is what is happening to us. That's what we experience. And as I was reading this book and I was realizing there is not a more apt modern comparison in American Christianity than the lynching of black people to the suffering of Jesus that you could find. Mm -mm. What I grew up having was a comparison of soldiers dying, uh, you know, white soldiers dying in the war in Iraq. That's what Jesus looks like. But we actually have black men and women who were sacrificed on the altar of racism and white supremacy by the collusion of church and state because of fear, because of, you know, lies, because of all these things. Um, that's what happened to Jesus. And, and I was angry and I was angry that I sat through how many Easter sermons in my life growing up in the church and no one ever used, saw that comparison. No one ever saw the similarities there. No one ever highlighted that. And that is what made me start to say, okay, I've been reading the Bible all wrong. I need to start learning from some other folks. And as I started learning from other folks who were minority folks, who were folks who had been marginalized, who were people who had been silenced and who had suffered, I started to see the Bible come alive in ways that I had never experienced before. And I think that's why I can say now, 10 years later, like, M, you and I are reading a different Bible because my biblical imagination has been shaped by people of color, by the Latinx community, by, you know, women, by all these different people who are looking at the same translations that you're talking about, because we're reading in English, people who have studied Greek and Hebrew that the, you know, original text was written in. And they're saying, here's what I see. And I'm like, ah, yeah, you see better than most of the people who have been interpreting the Bible in modern history, because you are in a similar social location to them. Mm -hmm. And just to maybe connect a loop here, what, what that has done for me is it's taken belief in Jesus out of this realm of philosophical or intellectual assent, even to talk, to kind of tie back to our last episode to very practical, earthy, what, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to, what is reality? What does it mean to follow Jesus, a real human who lived a certain way, who taught real things, who modeled a way of being human in this world that we're a part of? And not do I believe in these 10 doctrines that some guy told me I had to believe in order, in order to go to heaven, but do I believe Jesus? And if I believe Jesus, then I'm, that's going to affect the way that I live my life. And that it, it just moved it from this like intellectual, abstract, vague world that I get my list of to do's from. And I love people, but I actually don't do anything in my life that shows love to anyone except for the people that are just like me. You know, this, this is like my, my story in a way. And it, and it moved me to a real lived faith rather than one of like, well, do I believe the right things? And, you know, it makes me think of when you were describing your response to the song, the blessing. And when Beth is saying, 
do I believe because I want to believe in heaven or do I believe because I really believe? And I would just want to say to you both, like, there's no wrong way to believe. <laughs> like we were well, so like you and I have had conversations about, and I think, you know, helped spark a little bit of that idea for you was that you had said like last summer to me, like when I was saying, I just selfishly want to cherry pick it and I want to believe what I want to believe so that I know that there's something later. And you were like, well, what's wrong with that? And I was like, everything's wrong with that. So I, so we had talked about, and I want to see if you're okay with saying, cause I know that you don't want to like answer questions as some for everyone to take as their truth, but I've never really been told by you, like, what do you believe happens? I mean, that's the, that's what this whole podcast has been about for me is, um, I mean, I spend a lot of time listening to others say what they believe happens next, if anything. And I think you believe that something happens next. Are you comfortable saying from your studies what happens or what you believe happens? I can, I can take a shot and I can tell you, you know, where I'm at right now. I don't know what happens. I don't know. I guess I'll start, you know, there. I don't know for certain anything. I, and I also don't really have a super sharp belief or, or sense of what happens immediately, you know, when, when you and I take our last breath. Yeah. But I do have strong beliefs and what I think is where this is all going. And, um, and, and that does come from the Bible and it comes from the very first book and it comes from the very last book. And it's, uh, I believe that God's intent of creating our world and humans from the get-go was to, to lovingly steward all of creation alongside human beings, um, as God's images. And that's what God wants. God wants us on earth. God wants us in relationship to God and to each other. And God wants us taking care of the world that, that God created. Is that fair? What do you mean? I mean, so, so far it sounds like, you know, he had an idea and this is what his plan was. I don't know. I just kind of keep going back to, um, in my mind, you had brought up, we kind of talked about stardust. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you're like, seems like you kind of have a materialistic worldview. And I'm like, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's where we ended things. And so when we're talking about this, like, um, thesis, I guess, of like, Hey, this is what the Bible said was his intention. What does his intention have to do with me? And why is it? I'm a guinea pig, hmm. you know, I, so I, if, if, if he exists and again, I, I, I really do, I'm sorry for interrupting, but I want to know what you think happens at the end or what you at least have a basic understanding of for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, it just like, I, you know, my quote, it, it's unfair. Like, I'm just like thrown here. I don't remember life before. Most would say I'm not going to remember life after. Mm-hmm. That's terrifying. 
What I, what I hear in your, in your question to me, Em, is still like this assumption of this view of God, that God has this, this plan that he's forcing us all into that. If we don't follow, we'll be punished. I don't know if that's, you know, where you're going, but that's, I hear some like residue of that in the, in well, like the I said, if there's hell and I go to it, honestly, at this point, I'm just fine. It's literally just that I want everyone to be able to go somewhere because it's very hard for me to rationalize existence at all, mm-hmm. but especially an existence and where someone lived in persecution from yes. the beginning until the end. Yes. Yeah. And they didn't get to have this storybook, like this fairy tale ending, like Jesus. Right. That's, mm-hmm. it's not so. I read the Bible and how you're saying. 100%. Like, that's how I saw the Bible. But I'm saying, did well, you? Well, I haven't got to finish. I just just started. So maybe, maybe 100%, but maybe not. Um, so that the origin story of the Bible was told during a time of competing origin stories, where, you know, the, those competing stories basically were like humans were exist, were created to be the slave race to serve the gods. And that's why they're here or creation exists because the gods got in it's this giant fight and one ripped the other one in half and half is earth. And like, so this is why it rains and this is why the sun. Yes, yes, yes. And so, so I think from that perspective, they were like, we're all here. There, there wasn't this disembodied platonic Greek philosophical notion that we existed before this, we got put here and now we're going to go somewhere else in a disembodied state. The, the early. And at the time you're saying in the times that the Bible is being written. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the ancient Hebrew folks who told these stories that eventually got written down, they did believe in like the, like the heaven space, the earth space, and like this shale, shale place that was just like the land of the dead and the garden of Eden, where God, you know, God carves out this space of blessing and fruitfulness and safety and life, um, was this place where heaven met earth, heaven and earth overlapped. It's where humans could live and flourish and safety and where God was among creation and things worked and things were good and things made sense. And with, within, so contrast that to God created you. So you would serve God or, you know, you were just kind of this accident that occurred out of the, a royal battle between the gods as they were duking it out over the cosmos. This is the view that ancient Hebrew thinkers had. We were not here as slaves. We're not here as just a random, you know, accident of some God's battle actually the the being who is supreme over all of creation created us from love to love one another to love creation and to experience god's love and and to to be fruitful and multiply to take this eden this heaven and earth space and colonize the entire planet so that right now eden is just this little spot but once god once like god's desire for existence has happened, the whole entire planet will look like the Garden of Eden. That's that's the that's the story of Genesis one and two. Now, 
from the very beginning in Genesis 1 and 2, humans are made from dust. And dust is the biblical kind of metaphor for mortal. We were humans were made and and were mortal from the beginning. But in the light in the garden, they had access to the tree of life. So they could go to God and they could have life forever. And then there was also a test. There was the tree of choosing, of knowing good and bad for yourself. And so this origin story is that God wants to partner with humans in love and relationship to lovingly steward all of creation into this fruitful, flourishing, um, harmon- like harmonized way of being together. And that is possible when we rely on God's love and we rely on God's wisdom. But we always have had this option to, to decide for ourselves what's good and bad. And humans tend to, to do that. And what happens from that is a lot of brokenness. And so fast forward to the book of Revelation. And what we see is not human beings being whisked off to some other disembodied state. But what we see is heaven coming to earth, new Jerusalem descending from heaven and coming down to earth. And God has, is renewing all of creation and, and God and Jesus lives on earth with humanity forever. But now the enemy has been defeated um, and Satan and his demons have been thrown into the pit where they can't get out. They're taken care of. And there, you even see like Kings and different, you know, members of different nations coming and bringing gifts to, to Jerusalem and offering their gifts to, to Jesus, to the lamb. Um, there's no chaos anymore. There's no darkness. There are no tears. And so you see in revelation, the fulfillment of what was begun in the garden, but now with no, no serpent to slither in and get, you know, get anyone off track because in Jesus, the serpent's head has been crushed. And those of you who have read Genesis three might remember that little prophecy from when God tells Adam and Eve, what's life's going to be like now that they have eaten of the fruit of uh, knowing good and good and bad. And so that's what I believe this is all heading toward. I believe there's going to come a time when Jesus returns and renews heaven and earth. And when he's done doing what he's going to do, that humanity will be renewed in Christ and will rule with Christ on a renewed, uh, on a renewed earth that looks like the garden of Eden, um, forever. Now, is that like a metaphor? Like, because scientifically the earth will only exist for so long. Sure. Do you know what I mean? Like, is that, like, is it, we're going to be out in the solar system? You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, and that, that I don't know because I am, I am okay with the imagery of the Bible shaping my imagination to say, I don't think that the Bible is trying to give us a science textbook vision of what the future will be or how everything, how history will come to its culmination. But I do think it is true. You know, so even if you say it's a metaphor, we don't know what the building blocks logistics will be, but what will be true is that we will be living in, um, 
in a created state, in an embodied state, Jesus is, we, the New Testament says that Jesus is the first born of, or the first fruit of the resurrection. So Jesus was fully human. Jesus went through death as all of us will go through death. He was vindicated and resurrected in a human body. That's like 2.0. You know, when people saw Jesus in the resurrection, he was human, but he was human in a way that they weren't. Um, he still ate, he still talked, he still hung out with them. He was, you know, all of those things, but he was resurrected and we all will have the opportunity to be resurrected in the way that Christ was and live in these resurrected in this resurrected embodied state for all of eternity. Now, is it a new planet? Is it, is, you know, how does that work when, with what we know about physics? Is it an alternate universe? Is there another dimension that is more real than the one that we're in now that will, that God will bring us into. Oh, I don't know. I don't know, but I think anything's possible. Yeah. Because that's where, you know, when you would kind of, I think you had sent me a quote, um, to maybe help me feel better. And I was like, yeah, that's what I'm scared of. It's like, we start as stardust and we end as stardust. And you asked me about like a material, materialistic worldview and I'm like yeah because I think that's the way that we read it in the Bible and I know I know a lot of what you're saying is like it's it's so up for interpretation because like say we were writing the Bible today we're gonna have an understanding of a lot of things scientifically with weather and you know geographically and just we would have a better understanding or at least a different understanding and we could say oh no that's actually this and oh no they meant this so you know they're they're speaking from a place of they could only compare it to what they what they knew at the time but that's just uh it's crazy complicated to try and (laughs) sit with, I guess, and and be okay with, uh, for me. Yeah. And, and of course, like, like you said at the beginning, my goal is not to say, well, duh, there, believe that. And everything's going to be fine. But it is to say that, um, I, you know, I believe that God's intentions for humanity have always been good and loving. Um, and that God will bring about the reconciliation of all things, through Jesus. And, you know, when I think about what, what happens to us when we die, I think the, the Bible says that all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. All, all, when I think when we die, we will meet Jesus. Um, people say that to scare people, but I think that's so dumb because when Jesus was on earth, Jesus said to Nicodemus, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so the world could be rescued through him. And so if Jesus is the judge and Jesus came into the world to rescue the world, then I think that's like the best possible news. I think that's exactly when I die. That's what I want to happen is I want to see Jesus because Jesus loves the world. Jesus loves humanity. Jesus became a human to show us what it means to be human and to reveal to us what God is really like. And so, you know, to me, it's good news. It's when, uh, when I die, I'm going to meet Jesus and 
however God is leading all of history to its culmination, God understands physics better than any of us do. Um, when it's all said and done, humankind is going to be with Jesus forever um, in a in an embodied state, experiencing life as God always intended, um, flourishing beauty, restoration, love, um, Eden blessing uh, for everyone. You brought up before, like I think the cosmos and God. Have you been like delving into? I mean, is that is there a term for that now? And what does that look like to you? Oh, uh, you mean uh, when I'm mentioned the cosmic Christ? Yes, the cosmic Christ. Yes. So in the um, previous episodes where I shared three different passages from the Bible. Those were the passages from the Bible that this idea of the cosmic Christ comes from, it's, you know, Colossians and Ephesians. And it's this idea that in, in Christianity, we have a, a Trinitarian faith, which is that the being that we call God, God is such a terrible word. To, it's, it means so many things to so many people, but, but this like Supreme being that we're imagining in the Christian faith is not, is, um, is eternal relationship and that eternal relationship is expressed in three different persons, one of which being what we call the sun. Um, and so there, there's this idea that the sun has always existed. And when you look at the Bible, when you see the sun coming up, what the sun does is create. What the sun does is huh. hold things, hold everything together eternally. Right. So everything that exists, exists because through the sun. And, um, and so this idea is what, like, we believe Jesus is the human incarnation of that second person of the Trinity, the one through which all, all that is made was made, the one through which all creation came through. That is the one who became human to show us what it meant to be human and to show us what God was really like. And that is the one who died. That is the one who was raised from the dead. And that is the one who is seated far above all things in supremacy over the entire cosmos, who mm -hmm. is advocating on the behalf of humanity and who sends the spirit of Christ to lead us into truth and to renew all of creation. Um, so Jesus, if in the, in the garden in Genesis, the son you know, is this the word that goes forth and through which all thing, things are created. When the son becomes Jesus, Jesus is the word through which new creation begins. And so Jesus being born is the first day of the new creation in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, my view as a, as a Jesus person is that Jesus has brought the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven to earth. And he has shown us what it means to, to live in the kingdom of heaven. And he began, he planted the seeds of new creation that are springing up all around. And he invites all of us into that new creation now, and that we don't have to wait until we die to go to heaven, or we don't have to be afraid of going to hell, but we can respond to the person of Jesus and say, I want to live in the world that you talk about. I want to be a part of the world of bringing the world that you say you're bringing. And so I'm going to model my life after yours. And that's what I believe in. I don't, I don't say things like I believe in heaven. I believe in hell. 
I believe in Jesus and I believe that Jesus is the one who, in whom all of life's meaning and purpose finds its origin, finds its center and finds its culmination. And, um, I get to be with Jesus now through the power of the Holy spirit. When I die, I get to be with Jesus as my judge. And he's going to, you know, judge in a way that is gracious and true. And when God brings all of history into its culmination, I get to be with Jesus forever in a resurrected body living as if we're in the garden of Eden with Jesus, having made all things new. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus for me. Um, and you know, I guess maybe we can wrap up with, with this thought, unless there's any other question that you wanted me to touch on when you know, so you're my sister and I love you. And we've talked a lot through the years and my faith has shifted a lot through the years. And I remember I have a moment of great sadness when I reflect on a time when you reached out to me in a low point, when you were struggling with your depression and with your suicidal ideation and you didn't know where to go. And you called me, I was at in a lounge at Bible college and you told me what was going on. And I said, well, the Bible says God is close to the brokenhearted. And, um, even as I was saying it to you over the phone, I was like, what are you doing? Shut up. You don't, that's not help. I, I was so scared. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. Um, I was afraid that you would leave the faith. I was, I was afraid of all these things and it, all my fear kept me from just being with you and just kept me from just loving you and just being your sister. You know, I like became something other than just my human self, something other than your sister who cares for you. And, um, that was a defining moment in my discipleship because I felt the emptiness of, of what I had to offer you then. And, um, as I, I went forward from that and I was, was determined to not ever do that to you or anyone again, I had to start really figuring out what I was so afraid of. And, and was that something that Christ was producing in me or was that coming from something else? And so as we've just been sisters over these last years, I have, um, I pray for you cause I love you and I believe in prayer and I, you know, think about you all the time. And I was praying for you, um, one time a few years ago and I was just, you know, telling Jesus, man, I just, I know, I, I know you have so much to offer her. I think that she loves you, you know, she, she likes you, but there's all this other stuff and I don't. And, um, and, and you were, you know, you were just kind of done with it. You know, you, you were in a space, you don't want to talk about Jesus. And, and I was trying to honor that, but I was also personally wrestling through that. And I felt like in that moment when I was praying about it, I felt like Jesus said to me, it's okay if Emily needs me to die. I'm willing to die. I'm willing. I, you don't have to try to keep her faith in me alive. There's a version of me that she knows that needs to die. And I've died once and I'll die as many times as it takes. I'm not afraid of dying. And that has stuck with me 
because I think that we get introduced to different versions of Jesus throughout our life. And some are more true than others. And some are more compelling than others. And I was in a place where I wanted you. I'm like, yeah, but Jesus is great. Jesus is great. If you just believe in Jesus, but Jesus meant something to me that Jesus didn't mean to you. And maybe that, you know, maybe that's still the case. Um, but it, when, when God told me that what it did was it reminded me of how essential death is to the life process and to us having to come to terms with what it means to be human. And that if you didn't believe in Jesus anymore, that's okay. Um, I didn't need to try to get you to hang on to something that wasn't working, that wasn't true, that wasn't bringing life and health to you. And, you know, as we approach like Easter and the, in the Christian faith, I would say the same thing to Beth, like Beth, if you're listening, number one, it's okay. If Jesus needs to die period. It's, it's okay. If you need, if you need to just let go of anything that you felt like you're trying to hold on to. And at the same time, it's okay to believe just for the sake of needing to believe that construct that we learn that said there are, there's a right reason to believe and a wrong reason to believe. I think is just not helpful and not, not necessary. Um, whatever in you is searching for or longing for belief that there is more is, is good and is okay. And there's not, there's no such thing as a bad motive for belief. And I just, I just hope that, um, you know, that if there's a part of you that desires to find Jesus through or on the other side of this, that he is there, he's already there. He's with you right now. And, you don't have to hold on to him. You don't have to muster any of this up. Whatever you need to go through is holy and it's okay. There's a, there's a quote that um, I came across in April of 2019 that really hit home for me as I was in that gray space that you were describing. Um, it's a Jonathan Martin quote, and he uh, tweeted this on Holy Saturday, which is, in the Christian tradition, the day after the death of Jesus. So Good Friday, Jesus is crucified. And then all day Saturday, Jesus is dead. And this is the day in that we are talking about that I think the Christian, our Christianity experience just totally skips. We don't, we don't even really celebrate Good Friday. We just celebrate Easter Sunday. Mm-hmm. But Jonathan Martin says this, there is grace this Holy Saturday for all kinds of in-between spaces. There is grace this Holy Saturday for not being who you were, but not yet who are to become. There is grace this Holy Saturday for those in the liminal shadowy place between crucifixion and resurrection. That's, that's what I want to offer to you. That's something I'm holding on to in certain gray areas of my life. You don't have to be anywhere other than you are right now because there's grace for you. There's grace for you in that space. It's important to know when you're wrestling in what you believe and something that you identify with so long that you're not going to lose your relationships in the process. 
Yes. That was a, um, like a lot of the reason why I have the relationships with the friends that I do, um, is because of the struggles that I had in my teenage years with my family. Um, yeah, because I've always felt set apart from you, you know? And I remember we wrestled a lot in high school um, with, I was telling you, like, you're so out of touch. Like, you can believe all you want, but like, no one's going to listen to you because you are so out of touch. Like, you're, you're shunned, like, you're, I mean, this is my viewpoint as a teenager. You're shunning the very people you act like you want to take care of. Yeah. yeah. And um, I don't remember you saying that to me. I do remember you bringing up the, like, my heart um, being hardened. I don't remember what that Bible verse was. Oh, it's in a couple places, yeah. But yeah, I mean, that was, that's something that's been said to me over and over again. And honestly, like it didn't hurt. I, it didn't hurt by that point because I had already finally been honest in that I just needed to give it up. Mm. I needed to take the purity ring off. I wore a purity ring for years. I needed to just exist. And so by the time you and I spoke, I, it's, you know, I called, yeah, to talk to my sister, but I expected, I guess. The response I was going to, that I ended up getting. Um, so I don't ever really look at that in the same light that you do, but, um, yeah, so much of the reason why I didn't leave was because, um, of the community that I had to give up and it has been hard since being okay and walking in the gray area that people don't want to be my friend anymore. Yeah. And, um, I did, I did. And I have felt that like relationally, um, um, with you and, um, our family members, there's been an ebb and flow of it and it's kind of come out on the gray area side, but it, it did go on for a while that way as well. And I am thankful that it's come out on the, um, loving side and that we all just are excited to be in the same room together. Cause we all, we all live all over the all over the map. I'm glad that we came out on that side and we didn't come out on the side of um, not getting to experience each other in life because of con- condemnation of one yeah. another, you know? Yep. I would definitely encourage that. I see that a lot more than I did at 15. I see a lot more um, of acceptance, but I'm. it doesn't mean that it's not happening, you know, mm-hmm. that families haven't been broken up or friendships haven't been broken up over I mean, something so important to some, but like you said, like I, I needed to, like, I had to let go of it. I just feel like, I really feel like I would have ended up in a psych ward. I felt like there was just something so innately wrong with me. And why would I want to sit in that? Because if you were to put that in any other context for a job or a relationship, they'd be saying it's toxic, get out. But there I'm just supposed to 
take it and continue to be like this flawed, terrible human. And yeah, I, I don't know if this is like how you, you know, end it in the podcast. It's just more of a reflection, but I do hope that family members, friends, partners understand like the severity of what you can lose and what they lose and, and trusting you with something so dear because um, no one wants to lose their mom or their sister or their brother just because they're scared and they don't know what they believe anymore. Um, and so now we can't have Easter dinner together, you know, or right. Easter luncheon. Like, um, I don't know who made that rule up that you just like shun people once you don't believe in those things anymore, but the consequences are just so grave and it's, it's, you don't want someone to believe just because they're scared they're going to lose you, you know? Because mm -hmm. all those things I had to contemplate, I had to contemplate all those friends that I was going to either leave behind or they would at least understand, um, but still have me at arm's length because that's what happened. Yeah. There was only one person from that that's kind of done life with me um but that's what happened I, I i mean do you want to be associated with someone that has had a possession mm. do you know what i mean like so i i it's sad how fear-based it has to be in order to keep the person in the religion like don't you want me there because like your Jesus is so cool. That beautiful. Yeah. 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 And, um, is that inclusive? Right. You know, no matter what boomers might want to say about how we don't, we don't like the hellfire and brimstone and we don't like the truth. I don't think it's the truth. And, um, when you're reading something that's to be interpreted, it's very scary to say that this one thing is true because my perception is different than your perception my life experiences have created me your life experiences have created you talking about people that have been just through an, an insane amount of oppression and the way that they read it versus the way i read it i mean no no two people are the same so to make one version the only version in the existence of humanity right I feel like that version of the Bible is way easier to crumble and your foundation is gone versus those that can explore it and tear it apart and paste it back together and, you know, whatever they have to do or whatever they, they end up, wherever they end up getting to in order to understand um, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Maybe a, a final thought here as we wrap up. One of the passages in the Bible that really it came to my mind and as I was just listening to what you shared is in First John. And it says that there is no fear in love because perfect love casts out all fear. That fear has to do with punishment. And um, that is one of the verses that meditating on for me over years and years and years 
that I just kept coming back to because I had been discipled into fear. I had been shaped into fear. I'd been molded into fear and fear being the motivation for anyone to become a Christian and for people to stay Christian and to do anything that they ever did. And when I discovered this other way, these other ways of looking and at and understanding the Bible. And I found that passage. Um, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, mature love, perfect meaning mature love that has matured is not afraid. Um, and, and that is, that is what I hope to kind of leave us with that all of the folks who are listening, you, you, the listener would know that God's love for you is, is mature. Um, you, if fear is what you have to hold on to, that makes you think that you need to be a certain way or do a certain thing. Um, it doesn't, that's not the only way to take steps on your spiritual journey. And that, um, there is an opportunity for all of us, I think, to grow, grow up in love, to, to become more loving people so that wherever we are on a spectrum of belief or non-belief agnosticism, whatever, we can all agree that love is a good thing. (laughs) And, um, when we are being motivated by fear in the way that we, we respond to people who are suffering, when we respond to people who believe differently than we do, when we respond to people who are doubting, there's an opportunity there to let love grow us up, to release our fear and engage from a place of trust and from a place of courage. We don't have to make people believe what we do. We don't have to scare people into their decisions. We can simply be with people as a loving presence and um, expect, expect good things to come from there. I think, and that's what you've done as you've shared. I hope that's an experience that people have had as they've listened to this. And I'm really, really honored that um, your friend shared her story and um, the place that she's coming from, because that is deeply human. That's true. It's painful. It's challenging. And it takes courage to, to voice the things that she voiced for us to, to respond to. Yeah. And I want to, um, make sure that I say how, how important she is to me today, just as she was then. And if I didn't have her transparency and her vulnerability, um, she showed me, she, she showed me what I believed at the time, you know, the face of Jesus, you know, she sought me out, even if it was, if it was a scary area to be in. And, um, I, I'm so thankful for her. And when I was looking through everything before we started the podcast, seeing how transparent that she's been in her walk with pregnancy loss and, and then also in sharing with me, you know, what she's been through. Um, it, it's, it is, it's so important because so many people do actually read it, no matter how silly you feel or how vulnerable and scared of that rejection, you know? Um, I mean, uh, she had that platform and she used it no matter how painful it was for her, 
um, and hard to revisit. And I'm just so proud of her. I just, I just have always loved her so much and she's an amazing human being. And, um, I'm so glad she reached out because I got to kind of walk down memory lane and really just appreciate, you know, the person that, that she is. And thanks for sharing her with us, with the Holy District community. And one final thanks to you, our listener, for just being on the road with us as we have gone through the series, Eternal Oblivion. Thanks for your contributions. Thanks for your good thinking and thanks for your excellent questions. And most importantly, for your vulnerability as we have shared with one another over these last several weeks. We're wrapping this series up, but we are heading into Easter week. And we have several special podcasts lined up for you to listen to, if that's something that you're interested in. And so we'd invite you to check back in with us. The first episode of this next series will drop on Sunday, April 10th, and we will have one podcast per day all the way through Holy Week. So I hope that you'll enjoy that. And otherwise, I'll just give you that final spiel. We'd love to connect with you more and keep on taking next steps together in our spiritual journeys. You can find us on social media at Rediscover Sacred. That's on both Facebook and Instagram. And of course, you can check us out at our website, holydistrict.org. The Holy District is a growing network of people in the United States who are finding creative ways to live integrated, Jesus-centered lives in their communities, with their communities, and for their communities. We're dedicated to rediscovering the sacred in the everyday spaces where we already live, work, and play, and we're so glad you're on this journey with us. Talk to you next time.